podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. Anju Moon is celebrating her feature film directorial debut with I Am Woman, the story behind the incredible success of Aussie singer Helen Reddy and how that feminist anthem came to be. But the Korean-born Aussie-raised Anju is not new to the film business. She directed the acclaimed 2012 documentary The Zen of Bennett about singer Tony Bennett after winning multiple awards in film schools in both Australia and the US. She's also worked with some of the biggest names in the music industry, from Lady Gaga to Aretha Franklin. I recently got a chance to catch up with Anju at her home off Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles, where we had a bit of a socially distanced chat about her career. Here's Anju. Anju Moon, welcome to Aussies in Hollywood. And I think that this is the first time I've gone to the same house for two different podcasts. Of course, uh, Dion Vivi, your husband, um, was my guest last year, last year, I think. And here we are, we're sitting in, well, you tell everyone where we're sitting. We're sitting in our Airstream, which is uh, kind of amazing that we're actually in here doing this because this Airstream um, really has been kind of a, a Winnebago for us when we're on set, when we're filming. And suddenly with the change in the world and the social distancing that we have to do at the moment, it's become so useful for many things. And now it's a sound studio for you, Jenny Cooney. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about I Am Woman and just, um, you know, it's been such a journey for you to get to this point with your first film with so many other things you've done along the way. So maybe let's just go back to the beginning. I know you were born in Korea. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and when did you discover that you were really, when did you get that bug for this industry? So I, my family came to Australia when I was about five years old. Um, my father had studied in Melbourne at RMIT. He studied to be a wool classer. And it was a very unusual choice for him at the time because it was in the late 1950s when Australia had a white Australia policy. Korea was still a very developing nation. If you were to do anything of any worth in Korea, you had to go study in America. Nobody had even really heard of Australia. And my father saw this opportunity because they were importing wool to Korea to make fabric, but nobody knew how to do the first stage of the processing. So my father convinced his company to send him to Australia and he studied to become a wool classer. And he went and he lived on sheep ranches and he slept with the shearers and he went hunting in the evenings and really had this extraordinary Australian life and fell in love with the country. My father's always had a deep love of both Australia and Korea. And when he went back home to Korea, he married my mother, he had three children, and the pull of Australia was just too strong for him um, and he ended up coming back to Australia. He was obviously poached by a million different companies because of his expertise in both countries. But we arrived in Australia and uh, we went and lived on a sheep farm and I went to a school um, in Baliang in Victoria where um, I didn't speak English and I sat in the front row, which was kindergarten, and um, sixth grade sat in the back row. So it was one row for each grade. And then the kids who went on to high school usually went to boarding school or went somewhere else. So do you remember the first, um, your first experience with TV or film or the arts? What was, what was your impression? So when I recently went to the Busan Film Festival with I Am Woman, I took my father with me and he was the one who reminded me that Busan was the last city that we'd lived in in Korea before we moved to Australia. And in Busan, apparently I used to sing on the radio and... I also danced in a dance troupe, uh, which was an, uh, like a, a national Korean folk kind of, um, you know, dance troupe where I did the fan dance and many other things and we used to perform. I remember the performing part of it very, very well. And I always remember that 
inherently I was a performer. So even growing up, you know, I was the great storyteller. I was the girl on the debating team. I was the girl throwing, you know, doing plays at school. And I didn't go to a high school that had a lot of arts options, but I, w I was always creating them. But I never really s understood the career that I could have as a storyteller, particularly as a woman and as an Asian-Australian woman growing up in Sydney, because there weren't a whole lot of people that looked like me that were in jobs that I thought that maybe I wanted to do. So I think that the natural extension of that storytelling and, and what seemed like a more like a clearer career path for me was journalism in a way. Um, and that seemed more respectable to my parents who, you know, being first generation migrants, they wanted their children just to be doctors and lawyers, not going to the arts in any way. <laughs> so I actually did go to law school, but I only chose the law school because it had a great theatre department at the University of New South Wales, which is where I spent most of my time. So, so then what was the crossover? What, what was the point where you decided that you wanted to make your living doing this and which part of it did you decide you wanted to pursue? It was really at university when I realised that most of my time and my passion was in theatre. So I was always down in the theatre department putting on a show, directing a show, performing in a show. You know, even at law school I was like in the law review and my part-time job when I was at university actually was I was teaching kids drama and I was uh, working for the um, Australian Olympic coach for rhythmic gymnastics. And I was her assistant and I was helping her with the choreography because I had a dance background as well. And it became really clear to me that I was never going to work as a lawyer. And it was really trying to find a way into storytelling through something that I could realistically manoeuvre a path through. So when I was actually at law school, I had a really great friend at law school, Ian Colley, who is now a very well-known producer in Australia. And he actually introduced me to his brother, who Craig Colley, who was an executive producer. Um, oh, actually, I think he was the head of children and television at, the, at ABC TV. And Craig was doing a new show called Edge of the Wedge. It was a television show which was kind of like a mix between MTV and 60 Minutes for Youth. It aired at 6 o'clock at night and it only played Australian music. And he, he got me to be a reporter on that show. But I realised when I was doing that show, I was working with some really talented um, directors and I realised very quickly that I didn't really want to be the person in front of the camera. Um, that I really wanted to be the, the creator of the story, which at the time I thought was a producer because that's what they said in television. But then I came to realise that was really the role of the director. And so then you, you went to the Australian Film and TV radio school where you met Dion too, right? Yes, and I actually entered the afters as a producing student because I, having worked in television, I thought that that's where the, the creative creation um, came from. Um, and yes, I met Dion there fairly quickly when I arrived at film school. Um, well, he, he told the story in the other podcast, in my podcast, about hearing the high heels down the hallway and had never, ever seen anybody in that school wearing high heels before. <laughs> you made an entrance, literally. Well, yeah, I think I'd been living in Paris for a while, so... <laughs> <laughs> I was really influenced by all those great designers when I was in Paris. Fashion has never really quite left my soul. Um, but I do remember meeting Dion and he would spend a lot of time convincing me to go to the library and watch these arty movies in the back of the library. Um, so I did get an amazing film education from Dion and I fell in love with him. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you guys moved to LA, you, you went back to school and you got a, another degree, right? So when I was at the film and television school in Australia, I'd made a second year film and that was probably part of the, the first collaboration that Dion and I started working on. He shot the film and that, that film was actually ended up being shown to Peter Weir, who is one of my all-time film idols and still, I think, one of the greatest directors in the world. And... I was just really lucky because my friend Annette Davey, who had edited the film, she's an Australian editor who's gone on to have an extraordinary career as well. It was her graduation film, so the graduates of that year were allowed to submit movies to Peter Weir. And he watched all the films 
And the head of directing came back and said to me, you know, I just want to tell you that Peter Weir told us that you should be a directing student. So Brian, who was the head of directing at the time, he said, look, you can't be a directing student because you're in the producing program. But he let me in my final year do all the directing components of that last year. And then I came out, you know, of film school with a much clearer path of what I wanted to do. So, yes, I, when I first came out of film school, I, I kept thinking, you know, what, could, what do I do in Australia where I can actually make money to live as a filmmaker without having to wait all the time for grants or have other people make decisions? So, you know, it seemed like the two industries that were really kind of thriving in Australia at the time was distribution and commercials. And I didn't know anything really about distribution. I didn't really know too much about commercials either. But I did, you know, I, I figured Dion and I know how to make films and I know how to market. So we ended up um, creating a, a small commercial production company, which actually went on to do some really great work. You know, by the end of the year, we were really up and running and working very well. And then um, at the American Film Institute, how did that all happen? Well, we'd reached a point where I felt like, you know, we had done really well with our commercial production company and I was looking at Dion's career and I really felt that he had really reached a point in Australia where he had done enough great movies that he needed to make a step somewhere else. And I remember saying to Dion, you know, I really think you've got to, you've got to work in America. And uh, simultaneously with that same uh, thought process, we ended up winning the green card lottery. And I just saw that as a sign that we had to make that step. So we decided to come over to America. We didn't come with on a movie like a lot of Australians do now. And we didn't come with a specific business plan of how we were going to tackle America. We just knew that... um, that the most important thing was to really try to establish Dion's career here. And, you know, I guess me being me, I just felt that that if we were going to come here, that one of us needed structure, somebody needed to be doing something. And, um, and I looked at both programs. I looked at the Peter Stark program, which is the producing program at USC, and, um, and AFI, which is a directing program. Um, and I applied to both. I was very lucky I got into both. But then really try to think through, you know, what my future would be. And I really saw it more as a director rather than as a producer. So um, I went to the American Film Institute, which was a really amazing two years. And so I really saw AFI as this kind of uh, transition for us into Los Angeles. Um, And I met great people there. I'm still, you know, I still have an association with AFI. I've gone back sometimes and I've judged their directing awards, which which is, I actually did end up winning their directing award when I graduated. I had my Los Angeles premiere at the American Film Institute uh, Film Festival, which was a really great way to kind wow. of wrap it up. What a full circle moment. Yes. Um, I usually ask one question of everybody in the podcast and particularly because you were supported by that part of that system in Australia that is so incredibly supportive for people in the arts. Um, you know, why do you think there are so many Australians here behind the cameras, in front of the cameras, who are all sort of punching above their weight for a tiny little country? Do you have a theory on that? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about the incredible support that we have in Australia. When Dion and I were at film school, we were part of a very particular time at the Australian Film and Television School where the support was extraordinary. They actually paid us to go to film school because they didn't want us to be working. It was, you know, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to live on to make sure that you could really focus on the craft. And at the time, I remember being told that we were the second most expensive students to train after jet fighter pilots in Australia. And I sort of believe that because the the focus was was really special and it's really paid back to the Australian film industry. I think of all our all our colleagues who were there at the film school at that time and before us. Um, you can't look at one major Australian film without seeing a head of department or a director or a producer who has 
did not come through the program at that time. That support really allowed young creatives like Dion and I to really explore our voices. And that's an incredible gift to give an artist. So I have to say, I have to really take my hat off to the way the Australian government at that time handled the arts and the support that was given to people in the film industry and to education. Education was so fundamentally important. And then on top of that, I think that when you grow up in Australia, and I'm a, I was born in Korea, but I really identify with the, the notion of being, you know, a little Aussie battler because it is really innately a part of the culture. You fight for what you want. You fight for what you believe and you're not scared to speak up. And I think that that's why I made I Am Woman. And when I f first met Helen, it was really a story that resonated with me because I understood what it meant to leave your country, to leave home, to fight for a dream. Um, and she was really one of the first that did it. She was. Oh, I love that. Um, you didn't direct your first feature film for a while, but you directed other things along the way. Can you talk a little bit about your journey? Um, was it difficult? Did you want to do feature films? I mean, how, how, how did it play out? You had all this experience. You had this passion. Tell us what happened next. I think that's a really interesting question to ask women directors in particular because when you think about most career trajectories, you have to factor in the fact that, you know, women have children. And, you know, different women handle it in different ways. And I think that I always thought when in my early days, you know, when I started off directing commercials, you know, doing really successful short films, you know, really having a career where I was ready to, you know, start uh, working in the feature field. Um, I'd been offered television work. I was sort of on track to make a feature film. And then I had our beautiful son. And I think it's really interesting how before that moment, I th perhaps thought I would handle being a mother in a very different way. But when I had Axel, I think that the reality of having two people in, two parents in the film industry really struck me very deeply. And I felt that, you know, somebody had to be around for Axel in those early years. And I don't think, it's a choice that I made and it's a choice that I do not regret for one single second. I think it's the best choice that I made, not only for my son, not only for my family, but for me as an artist, because having those early years with him really made me a better filmmaker. I, it just made me a better human being. You directed a, video, a music video with Amy Winehouse and Tony Bennett called Body and Soul. That was 2011. And then you ended up making a documentary about Tony Bennett. Can you talk about that journey starting with the music video and what that was like? And So the music videos were actually integrally a part of that project called The Zena Bennett. And The Zena Bennett is a documentary that was... Um, you know, initiated and, 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 and the baby and brainchild of Tony's son, Danny Bennett. We'd had a friendship with Danny through a previous project that we'd met him on that Dion had shot. And so when he was making this project, he, he started talking to us about how he would do it. And then we just decided that we would all do it together. So Danny had this idea to structure the documentary around the making of Tony's album Duets 2. We filmed everybody from Katie Lang to Natalie Cole, the great Aretha Franklin, um, Amy Winehouse. We did the first uh, recording that Lady Gaga did with... Tony Bennett, um, and he had a very interesting idea, which was we would shoot the music videos as the film as the film was being made, as the album was being made. So all those music videos um, sit alone, yet they were filmed as part of the documentary. 
Hmm. Yeah, and it was a very interesting process, the, the documentary, because we were trying to give it a very intimate feel. We really wanted the audience to feel like they were almost like a fly on the wall and part of Tony Bennett's experience of making this um, album. So everybody who came into the studio, regardless of who you were, um, if you were going to be on camera at any point, um, had to be had to have a microphone and had to be agreed to be recorded for sound and for image. And because I couldn't 100% plan, you know, where people were going to be or what they were going to do, I would have sometimes, you know, up to s seven, eight, sometimes ten tracks of sound and I was listening to everybody in the studio and trying to figure out where the cameras should go depending on what I could hear on my headphones. A it must have been really thrilling for you to be in a room, you know, collaborating with artists like that, as well as Tony Bennett, of course, who's a legend. Yes, and Tony was always my first priority in all those recordings because, you know, I felt that one of my biggest jobs was to really take care of Tony and to make sure that the film was seen, th you know, in a way through his eyes. Um, I'll never forget the day that um, we shot Aretha Franklin and, you know, there, there have been a couple of, you know, different instances of trying to get her and it wasn't working out and we finally got the go-ahead, the green light to film her. And what was really interesting was that in every studio setting that we went to, we really made a big effort to kind of, you know, art direct the studios to try and create different environments to help the performance as, as well as what you were seeing on screen. Um, but it happened that the day that we're shooting Aretha Franklin was the hottest day, one of the hottest days in 60 years in New York. And Aretha had, you know, one of her requests was that there was to be no air conditioning in the studio. And those film lights are hot. So, you know, we prepped the studio, Dion pre-lit the studio. I was like working with the whole team to try and make sure that the world was set up correctly for Aretha to enter. And an hour before she arrived, we turned off the air conditioning and within 10 minutes, we were all sweating. It was like we were sitting in a sauna. It was that hot. And I remember going downstairs, being told that Aretha arrived. I went downstairs to meet her and I was helping her take her bags out of her car and she had this big... Um, this big plastic sort of case and I was like Aretha what's this she was like well I bought a heater in case it's too hot in there in, t in case it's too cold in there I should say <laughs> so <laughs> meanwhile everybody was up there and it was so hot in the studio that our cameras kept shutting down so we were taking ice packs and putting them on the back of the cameras like we were going to the local convenience store and making ice packs in plastic bags to try and cool down the cameras but she did not want that air conditioning on and Tony, being the ultimate professional and the ultimate gentleman, was in his suit and tie the whole time. And he was so, he was sweating, he was hot. But when the two of them sang and when Aretha opened her mouth, you just forgot about any of that. I mean, it was the voice of an angel. It was just extraordinary. And then, of course, right at the end, um, she just turned around and said, yep, you can turn on that air. <laughs> it was amazing. So let's fast forward a little bit to to Helen Reddy and I Am Woman. Um, before we talk about you meeting Helen and the genesis for the film, what did you remember about Helen or did you know about Helen growing up? And what was you, when you sort of think back about Helen Reddy in your early years, what, what comes to mind? So I had just completed the Zena Bennett and I remember it was January and I was going to the Gadea Australia Ball. I think Dion and I, we'd been working on something. We were running a little late. And when we went to sit down, I saw this woman sitting at the table and I thought I recognised her, but I couldn't put my finger on who she was. And I asked Jackie Weaver, who was at the table, I said, who is that person? And she just looked at me and this, she broke out into this big smile and she said, that's Helen Reddy. And as soon as I heard her name this memory of growing up in Australia came flooding back to me. So I'm not really old enough to have gone to a Helen Reddy concert or even to have gone out and bought an album on my own. But as a little girl growing up on the North Shore of Australia, you know, in Sydney, in Australia, I could very clearly remember the effect that her music had on my mother and her friends. 
I remember sitting in the car and suddenly her, a song would come on and, you know, the window would be wound down and they'd, you know, let loose their hair and the wind would blow and they'd be singing really loudly. And I think it was a very visceral memory for me, the fact that every time a Helen Reddy song came on, it seemed to change the way women were, especially her song, I'm Woman. So when I realised who was actually at our table, it was like, you know, it was like meeting one of my greatest icons. Um, Dion was actually sitting next to her, so I made him swap seats with me. (laughs) And he didn't mind, but I really wanted to talk to the woman who had created such impact for women. And I was really lucky I got to sit with her during a whole dinner. And by the time dessert came around... I realized that she had an incredible story, even beyond what I knew um, and beyond what I'd read about and beyond that feeling of just the change in women. In the back of my mind, I kept thinking, oh, she'd be a great story. She'd be a great film. But I was really convinced that somebody must have made a film already. How could you not have made this story already? How could not Australia have embraced her story? She was a pioneer in so many ways. And so, of course, I went home, I Googled her. There was no film, but there was an incredible amount of resources and imagery, um, especially if you look at a a site on YouTube called Ready Rock the 70s. (laughs) Um, I think I stayed up all night watching videos from Midnight Special, Carol Burnett show, clips from the Helen Reddy show, Helen performing in Vegas. You know, I was so immersed in her world and I was so excited because I knew that this was the story that I had to tell. So when you were chatting to her, did you, did you, were you sort of drilling her on her history and she was telling you things that you didn't know or how did it, how, how was the conversation and, and how did it feel when you approached her and wanted to tell her that you wanted to make a movie about her life? So Helen is quite a very private person, but also Helen, one of the things I love about her is, you know, she's a true Australian. She says exactly what she thinks. You know, she's very blunt. And Helen and I have always had this really great relationship um, because I understand that bluntness as well. I understand the way she, she sees things. So I guess my background as a journalist, as you know, Jenny, always helps in some way because it's so... You know, in, intuitively, you can get people to, um, you know, tell their stories. And I often think that, you know, part of that is that we're really good listeners. Um, you know, I'm not trying to put my take on the story on her. So, you know, I did ask her a lot of questions to the point where when I actually rang her son the next day, because that was the phone number that she'd given me to call, he actually said to me, he said, wow, he said, how did you get so much out of my mother? He said, usually she doesn't like to say any of that. <laughs> so I think there was an an ease of that relationship from the very, very beginning. She gave me her son's phone number, who was her manager at the time. And I said to her, Helen, I said, are you giving me your son's number because you'd rather me not pursue this, that you'd rather me not call you? I totally understand if that's the case. And she said to me, no, no. She said, I'm giving you his number because... I'm really awful with telephones. I'm really awful with technology. And she said something to the effect of, because Helen has is a little psychic as well, and she said, she said, I know and I see things and I see you in my life for a really long time. And I have been in her life for a really long time. Oh, wow. So you actually brought up the movie on the night you met her. So what I actually said to Helen in terms of, continuing the conversation was that I would just like to hear more about her story and more about her life. So we weren't specifically talking about a movie, um, but, you know, she was very interested to hear about how, you know, we had um, approached a documentary about Tony Bennett, who she obviously knew. I have a great photo of her and Tony Bennett sitting together, actually. So giving me her phone number was really a way to continue the conversation, which we did for probably almost a year before we decided to do the movie. Really? 
So you mean you would just go to her house and talk about her life? Did She didn't think that you were planning something with all of those conversations? or? Well, initially what we discussed was doing a documentary. So probably for the first six months, uh, Helen and I went to lunch. We would walk along the beach. She loves the beach. I remember, you know, she had moved apartments at one stage. I went and helped her one day and, and we were just, you know, in very sort of casual environments, just chat about her life really, which I often find when you're researching is the best way to get people to open up anyway. And as that conversation went on, I realised very clearly that, and because I was also researching what was available um, in terms of archival material, and there was so much available, I realised that because of that, it might be better actually and because of this extraordinary arc of a story that she had, that I thought that I could do the story a better service and get it to more people as a movie inspired by her life. Um, and then that was a whole nother conversation with her because, you know, then to hand over your life rights to someone where you don't know exactly know what they're going to do, that's a scary thing for anybody to do. So... It, it was really about building trust to the point where she had to really believe that that what I was going to make, she was going to feel okay about. And Jordan, her son, who was her manager at the time, was really, really helpful because he he know, knew he knows his mother very, very well, and he really saw the movie that I was talking about. So he, he and I spent a lot of time with Helen talking about that. He really helped get Helen to understand what the movie could be. And I remember when we were literally sitting down to sort of, you know, sign the deal uh, to say um, that we were going to make the film, that um, I remember saying to Helen, because she had concerns, and very rightly so, I would have concerns too, but I remember saying to her, Helen, I am not going to get everything right. This isn't a documentary. I'm not going to get every word that you said right. I might not even get the sequence of events right. You know, I, I may amalgamate characters to create one person to, to fulfill a role in the storytelling. I said, those things are not going to work like a documentary. But what I can promise you, Helen, is that I will absolutely honour the spirit of who you are, what your life has been, and what your music has meant to people and I think we did that in the movie and I think that's what she really loved. Why did you think her story was really important to be told? Helen's story I thought was first of all a quintessentially Australian story. It's a story about somebody who has a dream, an artist in Australia who wants to go to America and really fight for that dream and she becomes successful beyond her wildest imagination. At the time when Helen Reddy was at her height, she was probably one of the highest paid female entertainers in the world. And she had three number one hits in, in a row after the Beatles. No other artist had done that. So that journey that she goes on as, as, as an artist, I think is a really great story in itself because there are so many Australians who are now doing it and take it for granted, really, that you could just come to America. But I also saw it as a story very much about the journey of women. And, you know, her rise and fall as an artist really coincides with the rise and fall of feminism in the 1970s and the the realisation she has as a woman, what becomes important to her by the end of the movie and how she can be independent and how she can make changes in her life. And I thought that they were great messages, you know, for us in this moment. I found it extraordinary that when we were deep working on the script and before we started shooting it, the women's marches happened. And I was in Washington with millions of women you know, in the main square and people were holding up signs saying, I am woman, hear me roar, I am strong, I am invincible. How many years later is that? I just thought, how amazing, because when I heard Helen's story, I thought it was so relevant to me personally. And then as the world started to change and we had a change of government in America, her story became then really applicable to a lot of women. 
and now suddenly you look at the film and you and you of course you really appreciate the amount of work that women have done before us and it's extraordinary what you know the women of that second wave of feminism Betty Friedan Gloria Steinman you know Bella Azusa you know all the work that they've all done but also the fact that the equal rights amendment never got passed and the fact that we are still having these women's marches makes you realize there was still so much work to be done do you feel like uh, Aussies were really aware or appreciated her achievements in in that arena i think what's interesting is that helen always worried about the way the media treated her in australia and how dismissed she was on so many levels so it was interesting when rose and i were pitching this film even in australia how a lot of people knew who she was and oh but you know what some people thought she was american some people didn't even realize she was australian but the, those of those people who knew she was australian it's really interesting how people did not know the breadth of her achievement and the importance of her impact so what was your understanding of helen as a person um both public and private um when you first met and also how did that change through the process of making the movie when i was um before we started writing the script helen had moved apartments and i wanted to send her a housewarming gift and i thought what do you send helen reddy as a housewarming gift and she had told me that you know she doesn't she doesn't love doing housework but one of the things that she really enjoys is ironing so i sent her like an iron and an ironing board and at the time dion said to me how are you sending the woman who wrote i am woman an iron and an ironing board <laughs> and you know that i'm telling you that story because i think that that's how well i feel like i got to know helen you know that she is iconic but what i really wanted to tap into was how the the everyday things that really mattered to helen and what was important i did learn so much about her other than what you see on the screen and other than the the sound bites that you read about her and you hear about her I should say and I think that that was that you really feel that reflected in the film you feel that kind of the wholeness of that person do you think now is an important time for a film like this to come out when we had a premiere at the Toronto Film Festival it was our world premiere we were we were the opening night of special presentations it was you were there jenny it was such an extraordinary experience there were 2500 people in the audience and there were standing ovations and women came and they had tears in their eyes and thanked me for the movie and and people had felt just how much it not only meant to them personally but how significant the story was and the the comment about women and about the equal rights amendment how significant it was at that moment in time so since toronto which was last the towards the end of last year we had been working on the release of the movie and as you know covid has really slowed everything down it shut down cinemas worldwide so we had to really rethink how best do we get this movie to as many people as possible in the safest way possible and a lot of people want, you know as they've done with many other movies are holding films back from the cinema and waiting until cinemas open again but i guess that you know we we all felt that this is a film that really needs to be seen right now i think that in this moment that we're in with all the shutdowns in the world it's an inspiring uplifting story and i think that it would be a wonderful peace for people to watch because of the situation we're in but more importantly i think we all started to agree that we wanted to try and get this film out before the next election because i i think that it's a very entertaining movie and if you're a helen reddy fan and there are so many of them who've been writing to me and reaching out and saying when are we going to see this movie and i want them all to see this movie 
but I want them all to see this movie in a very safe way. But I really think that there'll be lots of people who will take away the inspiration of this film that as a woman, the choices that we make and the choice, the decisions that we make have to be really good ones for us as women, that we really need to feel that choices in government will impact us as well. So I think that a lot of the rethinking about where we were going to position this film came from that. And so, you know, we'll, we'll be opening this film out in Australia at the end of August. This film will be opening in America in September. And it didn't become about the format in which we were going to screen it. And there will be opportunities for people to see it on the big screen, not as wide as we had originally intended it to be. But we all believe it's a good choice. So talking about the directing of the movie, um, how did it feel, first of all, to finally get a chance to go back to Australia and direct a movie, which, which is on a much bigger scale, obviously? What was that like for you? Um, Dion and I had been looking for a project for such a long time to go back to Australia with. We really, we love the industry there. We are a product of the industry there. And part of taking a story back to Australia also meant that we would be taking a film that meant something intimately important to us because you you would be telling an Australian story. And even though my film is set in America, it is a quintessentially Australian story, as I, be, I was talking about before, because of the, the journey that the character grows on. So we were very, very excited to be able to do it. There were lots of things that we didn't expect, especially because we were trying to recreate America in Sydney. A lot of people don't realise when they see the film that we only shot two and a half days in Los Angeles. But the rest of the film, Washington, New York, Los Angeles, in all very different time periods, is pretty much all set in Sydney. So we really carefully chose the locations. Um, our production designer... Michael Turner had spent a lot of time in America. He'd lived here, so it was really helpful. And he, he comes from an architectural background, which was fantastic. So he could really determine, you know, make really solid choices and help us with locations that really ring true and had authenticity. The most surprising thing for me, I think, is that I just didn't realise how noisy those Australian birds are. So... You know, you could create this whole world visually and then suddenly we're shooting outdoors and that kookaburra would start or that... I mean, what are those black crows that do that terrible kind of like... You know, they sound like they're dying and in the... You know, you're doing a really intimate scene and then suddenly you have this crow or this parakeet or something making, you know, a noise. And then in post-production, we're always cutting around the birds. <laughs> I have to say that Evan Peters does a great kookaburra impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> I bet in the beginning he was thrilled with them and by the end he just wanted to throttle them all. <laughs> I didn't realise that, you know, that they were so prevalent. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I always get homesick when I watch an Australian movie and then I hear the birds. It do, it's, a, it's a definite thing about Australia that we associate the, that background country, land, you know, yeah. sound to. And normally I wouldn't be asking the female question in terms of like uh do you think you know being a female director made a difference but because of the subject matter and because it was Helen do you feel like this story needed to be told also by a woman or do you think it made no difference in terms of you as a director it's hard for me to say whether a male director would have approached this film differently I have incredible respect for so many male directors who I think would have done an incredible job in this movie but if I have to think about what I brought to it as a woman um, apart from my own personal experience of the journey of women that was something I could really relate to but then there were there are sort of maybe another important element as a mother and, and I really try to use that experience of you know the relationship you know between Helen and her children that moment where she just stands there and she looks at her son that she hasn't seen for a while. Just that feeling that you have and the importance of what that role means. Working with Dion, I mean, on, on, on our podcast, I have the he said. Now I want the she said of um, 
just what it was like for both of you to finally work together on a feature film and if you learned anything about him that surprised you and if the conversations continued 24-7, any disagreements, were you always on the same page? Tell us all about it. I think when we shot the movie, it's probably the most time we've spent together in years because we're always on separate projects. Dion's, you know, on some big film somewhere and, you know, they are... I always talk about his movies as being his mistresses and how incredibly time-consuming, you know, for him when he's on those huge $100 million movies, um, the kind of dedication and focus he needs to put on them, uh, which I understand, you know, we... We met at film school and we always had a dream of of being in the film industry together and we came to Hollywood to fulfill that dream. And so we understand how things work. I think it, we're very lucky that we understand how things work together. Um, so I actually love the fact that we got to most of all spend all this time together. It was just amazing. It was a very easy relationship. We have a lot of history together, both personally and professionally. And we have a lot of similar taste. You, you know, being together for so long, you can't not know what the taste of the other person is. And we have very clear communication. We decided very early on that, you know, if you're going to say something to the other person, you know, really, would you say that to another crew member? <laughs> And quite often that stops us from saying things that you would regret um, because when you're on a film set, you're so polite to everybody and you're trying to get the best out of people. So, you know, we really try to extend that into our personal lives, but we very much did that on the movie as well. You know, he's been involved, he was involved with the development of the script, so he really knew a lot about the story. He'd heard me talk about Helen for years and he was very excited by the project. So when we were making the film, he was, you know, very well prepped. But, you know, our communication was always very, very clear because I think he knew the film we were making. And I think that's my job as the director to make sure that everyone feels encouraged and inspired to be doing that. So with Dion, it was, you know, it was a very easy relationship on that level. I have to say that we were together 24-7. I love that extra time, but it was also invaluable because we we're on a very tight schedule. You know, I often say that money buys you the ability to change your mind and the less money you have, the less you can change your mind on set. But I wanted to give my actors freedom and I wanted them to be able to um, explore things on set. So we needed to always go in with a very firm plan with a contingency to be able to change things along the way. Um, and we wouldn't have been able to do that without that extra time together because in the evenings we'd go home, we'd be able to talk things and come in the next day with a really clear idea of what we were going to be doing with contingency plans to to manoeuvre, you know, according to, you know, what was developing in front of us at the same time. You both met in Australia at film school, as we were saying in the beginning. So was it sort of a full circle moment to come back to Sydney and be making a movie in Australia together? Sometimes when you're in the middle of making a movie, you can't even sense where you are. Like you're so deep in the movie, I think. But we did have those little moments, especially because we used to drive to set every morning and we'd be driving along the street and saying, oh, do you remember that place? Or do you remember that place? You know, that part of it was really great. And, and a lot of the crew that we work with, we've known in the industry for, you know, for many years. So it, that was also really wonderful to be reconnecting with people that we had worked with um, and have them on set with us as well. That gave it a feeling of familiar, familiarity and family. Those were all the wonderful things. I think the hardest part for Dion and I to make this movie was that our then 13-year-old son did not want to come to Australia. He wanted to stay at school. And it was the first time that he had been in a country with either in in a different country to either one of us usually he's with one or the other and this was the first time he had decided to stay in America of course he had supervision and help and somebody staying at the house with him but um that was pretty tough so what do you hope Helen's legacy will be after this film I think Helen's fans know what an incredible performer that she 
was and still is, you know, even even at in her 70s, Helen is still singing. So I know that Helen's fans will always appreciate the the beauty of her work and the breadth and depth of her career. But I also really hope that new generations of women will watch this movie and be introduced not only to the incredible artist that Helen Reddy is, but also be introduced to the extraordinary work that women did in the women's movement and the knowledge of how much more there still is to be done right now. One of my favorite moments of screening the film was at the Toronto Film Festival right at the end of uh, after we'd done you know our Q&A and I was leaving to go to the performance that we were doing on the street a young woman came up to me and she like literally hailed me as I was getting into my car and said you know I just really want to thank you for this film she must have been about 21 22 and she said I came because my mother I came because my mother wanted to come but she said but I'm so excited and happy I saw this film and I want to thank you because it's meant so much to me and I've learned so much not just about Helen Reddy but about the women's movement and that really meant so much to me because I think that's part of what I wanted from this movie as well. When we screened at the American Film Institute, um, a friend of mine who's an Australian director was at the screening and the next morning he sent me a photo. He bought his daughter with him who um, is at college in Los Angeles. She's actually at film school. And the next morning she had um, sent him a photo of her dashboard on the car because that morning as she was going to school she was playing I'm Woman and I think that those little things really start to make the kind of legacy this film will have on the audience come alive for me and I think that for the first time you hear the song after you've seen the movie it's sort of impossible to unsee it right I hope so <laughs> Anju, thank you so much for your time and I'm excited for everybody to get to see the movie too. It's been a long journey for you. so. Oh, thank you, Jenny, and thank you for being part of so much of this journey. It's been fun to have you along with us. It's been really fun. Congratulations. Thank you. It was great to hear how Anju was finally able to get this amazing story to the screen. And coincidentally, this is the third of my podcasts that covers the movie in some way. Anju's husband, Oscar-winning cinematographer Dion Beebe, has his own episode talking about working with his wife on this film. And actress Danielle MacDonald also spoke to me right before she headed down to Australia to film her role as rock journalist Lillian Roxon. So check them out too. Until next time, that's all from Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood was presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and recorded in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production was by Nick Slater, and executive producer was Jenny Goggin. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the app, or look me up on iTunes. Music.